Steeled for Murder by K.M. Rockwood. After nearly 20 years in prison on a murder conviction, Jesse Damon has been released. Determined to make it, he finds a basement apartment, a job on the overnight shift at a steel fabrication plant, and a few people who treat him like anybody else. Life is looking up, until a forklift driver on his shift is found murdered in the warehouse. The investigating detective doesn't want to look any further than Jesse to close the case. If Jesse isn't going to go down for this, he'll have to be the one to put the name to the killer. Steeled for Murder, book one in the Jesse Damon crime novel series, is from K.M. Rockwood. Ask for it everywhere you get your books. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be original stories. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season four, A Word Before Dying. This season contains original stories written just for you and built around that classic mystery theme of the last word before dying. Episode seven is about going with your gut. This is Best Friend by K.M. Rockwood. Chapter 1. Cryptic Message I sat at Darlene's bedside, my hand resting on hers, on her thin fingers really. A catheter from an IV drip snaked into the vein in her pale arm. So young, much too young for this. A monitor panel at her head of the bed blinked and hummed. Bandages swaddled the top of her head, a few lank, dark strands of hair peeking around the edges. The bandages ended above her sunken eyes, which shuddered but didn't open. Most of the time, her broken body lay still, at peace, I tried to tell myself. But every once in a while, tremors washed over her and she murmured incoherently, her face grimacing. This was decidedly not what I had anticipated when I answered a request for a woman to volunteer in assisting girls aging out of foster care as they adjusted to living as an adult. Darlene was a special needs client, her caseworker told me. Developmentally delayed was the current term. She would be eligible for adult services, but the massive waiting lists were hundreds of clients long. And with the adult caseworkers averaging close to 50 clients each, chances of Darlene getting the attention she needed were slim. That's where the volunteers can make a difference. The case manager made sure I had all the information and clearances I needed to arrange for Darlene to be evaluated and assess programs and services. Today was the day I was supposed to go meet Darlene at her foster home. Instead, here I sat. The hospital scent of disinfection filled my nostrils. Two nights ago, a pickup truck driven by Herman Boldale, the foster father in Darlene's placement, had slammed into her in the driveway of the foster home. 
Exactly how that transpired was unclear. Mr. Boldale maintained the girl had appeared out of nowhere, dashing in front of the truck as he was pulling in. He'd been traveling fast enough not only to knock her over, but to run her over. Her head slammed into the concrete and the big tires of the truck had passed over her torso. A neighbor passing by had called 911. The first respondent had been a police patrol car. One of the officers had started to administer first aid, but an ambulance arrived moments later. The only visitors who'd been in to see Darlene so far were me and Travis, her older brother. He was just 19 and barely out of foster care himself. They had been placed in separate homes for years, but with the help of a conscientious so social worker, they had managed to keep in touch with monthly meetings. The foster parents had not shown up since Darlene had been admitted to the hospital from the emergency room. Perhaps they were traumatized by the accident, but it still seemed to me they owed it to Darlene to come visit. The door opened and Travis came in. His thin face twitched. He snuffled and wiped his eyes with the sleeve as he peered at Darlene. He was carrying a manila envelope with a scrawny plastic floral stem and three artificial white roses that looked like they'd come from a dollar store. It probably had. His voice quivered. Any change, ma'am? He asked me. I shook my head and moved away so he could sit in the chair next to the bed. He sat down and stroked Darlene's fingers. The cuffs on his shirt were frayed. The laces of his weathered boots were knotted. His jeans were worn thin and had a rip in one knee. Definitely not the expensive fashion statement type ripped jeans. Maybe I could expand my volunteer efforts to help Travis too, adjust from foster care to independent living. He leaned over Darlene, his face inches from hers. How'd this happen, Darlene? She may have recognized his voice, for she moved her head restlessly and murmured something. Travis squeezed her fingers. What'd you say, honey? Her voice grew louder. Best friend. Travis glanced up at me, his eyes wide. Did, did you say best friend, Darlene? This time, her words were clearer. Urgh, best friend. Do you mean your best friend had something to do with this, he asked. Darlene took a shuddering breath but didn't answer. Travis tried again. What did your best friend do? She inhaled sharply and her hand fell slack in Travis's. The rhythmic blinking on the monitor board stopped. An alarm shrilled. A man in a white uniform rushed in, pushing a cart of medical equipment. I have to ask you to leave, he said briskly. The team will need room to work. What, what's happening, Travis asked. The man was busy checking the assortment of leads coming from Darlene's body. She's coded. Travis's voice rose in alarm. What, what does that mean? I grabbed him by the elbow and tugged him toward the door. It means she stopped breathing. Come on out. They do need room to work. Travis let me pull him out the door. Medical personnel were storming down the hallway, all of them moving quickly. Some of them were running. Chapter Two, Hope Against Hope. I steered Travis to a lounge at the end of the hall. He sat stiffly, still clutching the envelope and the roses. Is she dead? We won't know until they come tell us. I put my hand on his arm and his muscles were tense. He let my hand lay there. I promised her, he said. I promised her I'd take care of her, and I didn't. 
Travis, there was nothing more you could have done, I tried to assure him. There must have been something, he said in a strangled voice. I should have got her out of there as soon as I turned 18. Did you ever have a place where you could have taken her, I asked. Well, no, but we could have gone to a homeless shelter. His eyes brim with tears. I sighed. You have to be realistic, Travis. You'd never find a homeless shelter where you could both stay. Even if you found a place, no one would have let you remove Darlene from the foster setting to live in a homeless shelter. We could have gone to a family shelter, he said stubbornly. They're for women with little children, I pointed out. He swiped the back of his hand across his eyes. Still, I should have done something. You're here now, and that's something. But I could see my words had little impact. She never had a chance, he said. I figured he'd need to talk about her, so I said, Tell me about Darlene. I never did get to meet her, you know, before this. A sad, gentle smile softened his face. Darlene's sweet, a total innocent. No matter what happens to her, she's always nice to everybody. She should have had people taking care of her, looking out for her. His voice turned bitter. Not place with the foster family where somebody wouldn't run over her with a truck. I doubt anyone intended to run over her with a truck, I said. Maybe not, but she was run over. Travis opened the envelope and pulled out some papers. Look at this. What's that? I held them out, held out my hand for them. The police report, he said. I went and got a copy. Cost me almost $50. $50, I was sure he could scarcely afford. I'm surprised they released this so quickly. Yeah, well, they said the investigation was closed, so the report was finished, and I could have a copy. But it doesn't really tell what happened. More tears swam in his eyes. Read it. You'll see. Most of what I held was a photocopy of a multi-page form from which a hand had filled it out. It was in cold, semi-legalese. I suppose that's the way cops are taught to write their reports. No room for emotion or speculation. Darlene was referred to as subject. I scanned the first page. What am I looking for, Travis? Skip the description, he said, and the date and address. What's the first thing the cop does? Travis looked at me expectantly. He checks on the sub on Darlene, who is lying unresponsive in the driveway, I said. Probably see if he can help her. Yeah, and the guy driving the truck, the foster father, tells him what? Travis tapped the page in my hand. I scanned down the paper. He says that Darlene stepped in front of the truck as he pulled into the driveway. By the time he saw her, he couldn't stop. Stepped in front of the truck, Travis said, making a point. Not ran or fell, stepped. I wasn't sure I got the significance of that. Meaning what, I asked. He tapped the paper again. People don't step in front of moving vehicles, not unless they're high or drunk or something. I continued reading. The subject, Darlene, was not conscious when the cop checked on her. He had pulled out an emergency dose of Narcan and administered it. Isn't Narcan the stuff they use to bring drug addicts back from an overdose, I asked. That's it, Travis agreed. Darlene never wanted to get high. I always told her not to take stuff people gave her, especially men. She was, how should I say it, gullible? So trusting. She'd do pretty much anything you said. Take anything you gave her. I flipped to the next page of the report. 
Do you think she was on drugs? His eyes were fierce. Look at it. See what the cop says? That she reacted immediately, woke up and started crying. Sure sounds to me like she was drugged. I wonder why the cop went straight to Narcan, I mused. Travis shrugged. In that neighborhood, they figure everybody uses all the time. Anytime somebody's passed out, they think it's an overdose, so they pull out the Narcan. Usually, they're right. Suppose they're wrong, I asked. No real harm done, Travis said. Not many side effects, maybe a headache, and that wears off pretty fast. Then the medics took over, I said, reading on, and there's no more mention of the Narcan or suspected drug use. Travis tugged on one of his frayed cuffs. The sleeves were a bit too short. No, anything after that would have been on the medical report. I can't get that. Confidentiality regulations. No point in even asking. I looked at the young man in front of me. You know a lot about this. He nodded. I work in the hospital. Transportation. We had to all take training about confidentiality. HIPAA regulations and all. Chapter 3. Tragic News A doctor exited Darlene's room and approached us. By the grim look on his face, I knew the news was not good. I'm sorry, he said. We did all we could, but her injuries were just too extensive. Travis closed his eyes. His hand gripped the plastic roses and turned white. She's dead? I'm afraid so, the doctor said. Do you want to come into the conference room so we can talk about it? Tears streaming down his face, Travis shook his head. I gave his arm a squeeze and said to the doctor, not right now. The doctor pulled the card out of his pocket. Okay, if you decide you want to talk to someone, here's the contact information. Travis stood up. Can I see her? At least say goodbye. The doctor frowned. The staff is still working. They'll let you know when you can go into the room. We sat there for what seemed like a long time, but it was only a few minutes. People traced in and out of the room and wheeled out the equipment cart. Hello. It stopped recording again. Weird. All right. Well, let's 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 keep on a going. You ready? Travis got to his feet. I need to see her before they take her away. A man with a housekeeping cart outside the room glanced at us. I'll be back in a few minutes. He pushed the cart farther down on the hall and around a corner. No one stopped us, so we went into the room. Darlene looked peaceful. Her eyes were closed. Her face no longer grimaced and twitched. A woman was gathering up Darlene's meager possessions and putting them in a large plastic bag. Only her clothes, torn and bloody, and a ripped canvas tote bag. As the woman lifted that, the contents spilled out. A worn wallet tumbled to the floor, followed by a few pieces of gaudy jewelry and a cascade of colorful gems, which scattered in all directions. Travis bent down and picked up a red one. Darlene loved these. She collected them. She always thought they were real jewels. I took it from him. It was the kind of flat-back, sparkly, artificial gemstone that people use for crafts. They were available inexpensively in packages of hundreds or even thousands. Tears clouded his eyes. I'm glad she had these. I hope they made her happy. He turned to the woman who is now pushing the scattered items into a pile with her foot. I'll have to get something to sweep these up, she said. Can I have her stuff, Travis asked. I'm sorry, 
she did look starry. I'm not authorized to let anyone take personal possessions. I have to turn them in at the office and they need to get someone to sign for them. Who can sign, I asked. Usually an executor of the patient's will or, or next of kin. She went out in the hall in search of a broom. I'm next of kin, Travis said. But when a bet it's the foster parents or the social worker who gets to take her stuff. I gestured toward Darlene's quiet form. Why don't you take this time to say goodbye? He swallowed. You're right. Can I have a minute alone with her? When I got to the door, I glanced back. He picked up the wallet and a couple pieces of the jewelry and stuck them in his pocket. Then he moved to the bed and he put the roses in her hand. He leaned over and he kissed her. I waited outside the door. People hurried by, medical professionals in white coats, intent on their tasks, visitors with worry-eyed, support staff in blue uniforms pushing wheelchairs and carrying trays. The woman who had gone for a broom and dustpan came back with them. She was followed by a man with a covered gurney. They stopped outside of Darlene's room and opened the door, peering in. Slowly, reluctantly, Travis backed into the hallway. His head was bowed and he almost tripped. As soon as he was out of the room, the others rushed in. Come on, I said, have you eaten anything today? Travis looked dazed. No. I took him by the hand. Let's find the cafeteria. No. He tapped the pocket we had stowed the wallet and jewelry. I want to get out of here. Chapter 4. Exploring Options Still leading Travis by the hand, I found the way through a maze of sterile corridors and endless squeaking doors to an exit. After the harsh lighting in the hospital, the cloudy midday light seemed dismal and inadequate. Travis stumbled along beside me, not paying any attention to where he put his feet. When we reached the curb, he almost fell. We need to get something to eat. I tugged him toward the diner across the street. He stopped short. I, I couldn't eat. You need to eat, I said, even if you don't feel hungry. He didn't answer, just stared off in front of him. His eyes were blurry with unshed tears. I tugged a little harder. We're going into that diner. I'm going to buy us both something to eat. If you don't order anything, I'll order for you. And if you don't eat it, it'll just go to waste. He stopped resisting and let me guide him into the diner to an empty booth. Do you want breakfast or what? I asked, shoving a menu in front of him. He barely glanced at it. Maybe a scrambled egg and a piece of toast? The waitress came up, bringing two mugs and a pot of coffee. There we go. Hello. Uh, I didn't mean to yell that. Um, it stopped recording again, so we're going to try this for a third time. And I'll bet you this happens like eight more times in the next hour, so Ooh. enjoy. <laughs> the waitress came up, bringing two mugs and a pot of coffee. She pulled out her pad and waited for our order. I looked at Travis's thin shoulders. Two of your hungry lumberjack specials, orange juice, scrambled egg, bacon crisp, sausage links, hash browns, and um, plenty of syrup for the pancakes. Travis watched the waitress retreat. That's a lot of food. It is, agreed, but I bet you can eat it. He smiled wanly and changed the subject. I need to talk to Darlene's best friend. Find out what Darlene meant. See if she got anything to do with this. What do you think she could have done, I asked. Given her drugs so that she was so spaced out, she walked in front of a truck, he said. That seemed like a stretch to me. Do you know who it is? 
He dumped the contents of three sugar packets in his coffee and stirred. Maybe, probably a girl named Jenna who's in her class at school. I should have asked if he drank coffee. Do you think this Jenna is Darlene's best friend? Yeah, he took a sip and grimaced. When we saw each other last month, Darlene talked a lot about Jenna, said they were BFF. I warmed my hand on my coffee mug, but Jenna wasn't even there. She probably had nothing to do with this. Maybe, Travis conceded, his eyes blazed. All Darlene talked about was how Jenna got this job at Burger Barn and now had money to buy things. I'll go there and see her. He was determined, but in his present state, I didn't want him confronting Jenna by himself. He was likely to scare her or get himself into trouble. Let me come with you. He sighed. Okay. And, I tried to read his face, maybe it would be best not to go today. Give us a, a little chance to think. I can't go today anyhow, he said. I have to be at work for the afternoon shift. Then I have three days off. I'll go tomorrow. I raised my eyebrow. Are you sure you're not too upset to go into work? Maybe call in and take the day off. He gave a mirthless chuckle. <laughs> if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. If I don't get paid, I can't make the rent for my room. If I don't make the rent for my room, I'm out on the street. I'm going into work. Our food arrived, and despite his earlier claim of not being able to eat, Travis settled down in and devoured it. I was glad I insisted on ordering such a big meal. Chapter 5, Threatened at the Scene I dropped Travis off at the hospital where he worked and decided to take a look at 242 Poplar Street, the address where I was supposed to have met Darlene. The neighborhood was scruffy and run down. Gaunt teenagers had hands shoved into their kangaroo pockets of their hoodies, watched from the corners of their eyes as cars rolled slowly by. When one pulled over, two of the teens approached. One turned and glared at the other, who backed off. The first one went up to the car's window. I could see why the police who patrolled this area thought of a drug overdose any time they found someone lying on the ground. But Darlene had been hit by a pickup, run over. Did the fact that she seemed to respond to the Narcan mean she'd been high? Or had the irritant of something sprayed in her nostrils been enough to rouse her? We'd probably never know for sure. If the police had truly closed the case, there would be no further investigation. No autopsy, no testing for drugs, which would probably take weeks anyhow. The dirty tan brick building where Darlene had lived with her foster parents was a little better kept than the neighbors, but not much. A narrow alley ran beside it. Burglar bars covered the windows. In addition, the basement windows were boarded over. The entire house looked in on itself. Heavy curtains were drawn on all the windows. A small front yard, nothing but pounded dirt, was swept clean of the advertising flyers and fast food wrappers that scuttled around the street and lodged in the corner of the other buildings. The driveway was just a short run of cracked concrete that ended at the exterior wall of the house. Next to a jumbled pile of trash cans, a dark splotch stained one spot. Was that Darlene's blood? I envisioned the pickup truck traveling up the long, possibly curving driveway, and perhaps at too great a rate of speed. In that short distance that it actually ran, 
How could it have been going fast enough to cause such injuries to the poor girl? I parked my car and went up to the front door and rang the doorbell. At first I thought no one would answer, but then the door opened a few inches, held by a security chain. All I could see was a slice of a person's face, with one dark eye staring out at me. What do you want? The person said in a deep voice. Probably a man, but from what I could see I wasn't sure enough to dress him as sir. I tried to conjure up a smile. I'd like to talk to somebody about Darlene, if I could. We stood there silently for a few seconds, staring at each other. An odd aroma, possibly marijuana and some other scent, almost fetid, drifted out. It reminded me of marsh at low tide. I hoped the smell didn't come from something they were cooking. Who's there, Nikki? A woman's voice called from the back of the house. The silver of the face turned away from the opening. I think it's a reporter or something, Ma. Wants to know about Darlene. The voice inside the house shouted, No comment! Shut the damn door! The door slammed shut, leaving me saying, I'm, I'm not a reporter. I'd just like to ask a few questions. I wasn't very hopeful, but I tried the doorbell again. No response. I went to the sidewalk and looked back at the house. Not much to see. The alley ran along the long side of the house. I started down it, figuring I might get a feel for what it was like, this place Darlene had called home. As I watched, heavy curtains at one of the windows parted briefly and jerked shut. A door around the back slammed. A large woman in a faded house coat and slippers rounded the corner of the house, a shotgun in her hat. She stopped and raised it, not quite pointing at me. No trespassing. My throat closed. I, I was just in the alley here. She gestured with the gun toward the street. You'd best be leaving now if you know what's good for you. The alley was public property, but I, so I wasn't really trespassing, but I could see it didn't make any sense to argue, even if I wasn't trembling from shock and fear, not when she was holding that shotgun. Did social services really place kids in homes with people with guns and crazy enough to pull them like this? Did I even have the right address? I went back to my car and pulled out the paper with the address where I planned to meet Darlene. 242 Poplar Street, the right address. My stomach churned as I pulled away from the curb. I would be back. Chapter six, Seeking the Truth. About 1.30 the next afternoon, I picked up Travis from in front of his rooming house. He was wearing a different shirt, but it was equally worn. I went by the house yesterday, I said. The one where Darlene lived, he asked? Yes. Did you ever see it? I tried to read his expression, but his face was pretty inscrutable. I was driving, so I could only get a quick glance. No, he took a deep breath. They wouldn't even give me her address. We'd go to the social services building for our meetings, in a visiting room. They were set up for little kids with toys and things, but I didn't mind. Darlene liked it. She'd play with the dolls. What did she say about the home? I asked. Was she happy there? Travis looked down at his hands. Not really. I tried not to let concern show in my voice. Did she say how they treated her? Once again, tears were forming in his eyes. She wanted to come live with me. I told her when she turned 18, she could maybe get a job too and we'd find a little apartment, even just one room. 
Wouldn't she still be eligible for disability payments? I thought back to the notes I'd seen about her case. The plan had been to sign her up for benefits as a disabled adult and see if we could get her enrolled in, in a residential training program. Maybe, Travis looked out the window away from me, but if you take government money, they control your life. They wouldn't want to let her come live with me unless I could find a two-bedroom apartment. Not likely, even if we used all of her check for some of the rent. What kind of work do you think she could do, I asked. There was a hitch in his voice. Maybe the burger barn, the same place her friend Jenna works. I mean, Darlene was used to working, and if they hire Jenna, they might hire her too. I hadn't seen anything about a job in the notes. If she were already working, she should have been planning to build on that. What do you mean she was used to working? Did she have a job? He cocked his head sideways and looked at me. How much do you know about foster placements? I've been in a lot of them, so has Darlene. With older kids, mostly they want you to do chores and then stay out of the way. It wasn't how I envisioned foster care working. I guess I was pretty naive. So she was handling a lot of chores at the foster home? Yeah, bitterness showed in his voice. She said she had to take care of the others before she went to school in the morning and then after she got back. She said after school she couldn't have supper until she finished. Then they'd give her something to eat and tell her to take it up to her room. What did she mean, take care of others? Other foster children? I wondered how many children were in that smelly house behind those dark curtains with the shotgun near at hand. Probably, he said. She said she didn't mind the feeding so much, but she hated to clean up poop and spit up. He rubbed his eyes with the back of his hand. That sounds like babies, I said. He said, yeah, or, quote, special needs kids. Darlene was a little slow, but she could take care of herself. Some kids can't, and you get paid a lot more to take in kids like that than regular kids. I shivered at the thought. Is that what it was like for you in foster care? Taking care of other kids? Yeah, he paused. You know, when there are little kids, somebody's got to take care of them. But I was never in a place with special needs kids, like Darlene was. I was just taking care of regular babies and stuff. His comments were putting a new spin on foster care for me. We parked in the lot at Burger, Burger Barn. It was mid-afternoon and almost empty. Will you recognize Jenna when you see her? Travis frowned. I never met her, but how many girls are going to be getting off the school bus here? I looked around. She, she takes the school bus to work? He nodded. Darlene said they rode the bus together from school. Jenna gets off at the burger barn two stops before Darlene. Her work shift doesn't start until four, so she's always early. How does she get home, I asked. I don't know. I think her mom picks her up. She lives with her real mom. The pain on his face spoke volumes. Well, the best thing to do is to go in and see if she's here yet. I opened the car door. Will they tell us if we just go in and ask, he said. I remember how enthusiastically he dispatched the breakfast yesterday. Well, we'll go in as customers, I said. We'll order some burgers and then ask about her. His eyes clouded over. It's my turn to treat. I don't have much money. That's okay, I said. An investigation is going to cost something, and I don't mind paying for that. I patted the pocket where I kept my wallet. Chapter 7. Not the best friend? We went in and sat down. There were no other customers. 
A waitress in a pale green polyester uniform eyed us from where she was filling ketchup bottles at the bar. She put the bottles down and called, I'll be right over. She went down a short hallway past the restrooms and through swinging doors into the kitchen. She reappeared. Her name tag said, Eloise. She was drying her hands on a towel. What can I get you? I peered at the menu. Jumbo cowboy burger with french fries and a side salad with root beer. She pulled a pad from her pocket and wrote it down. Both of you? I looked at Travis. That okay with you? Yes, ma'am, he said enthusiastically. I wondered if Jenna is in yet, I asked Eloise. I'm not sure, Eloise glanced toward the kitchen. She's usually here by now. You want me to check? If you could, if she's here, maybe she'd like to come sit with us. I hope the request wasn't out of line. Eloise didn't seem to think much of it. She went back into the kitchen. A few minutes later, a tiny girl in a uniform just like Eloise's came out. She looked around tentatively and then came over to our table. Her name tag read Jenna. You want to see me? She said timidly. Yes, I gestured toward the empty seat. Why don't you sit down? Jenna glanced over her shoulder, but she sat down. Would you like something to eat, I asked. She chewed on her lip. I get to have a kitty burger and fries for my supper, but it's kind of early. I was beginning to catch on. What would you want if I got you something? She smiled. I've always wanted to try the mega burger, the kind with cheese sauce and onion straws. Okay. I waved at Eloise, who returned to the ketchup bottles. When she came over, I ordered that for Jenna. And what would you like to drink, I asked. A dreamy smile covered her face. A chocolate malted milkshake with whipped cream and a cherry on it. Travis's eyes opened wide. Two of those, please, I said. Eloise took the order and left. I turned to Jenna. Do you know Darlene? Jenna nodded. From school. Tell me about her, I said. Well, she hasn't been in school for a few days, Jenna said. Uneasily, I realized she might not know her friend was dead. It seemed dishonest not to tell her, but I thought it would be best if her parents were the ones to bring her the news. They would have a much better idea on how to support her through it. She's your friend, though, isn't she? I asked. Yes, Jenna gave that sweet smile again. We sit together at lunch, and when we work with buddies, she's mine. Travis couldn't contain himself. Did you ever give Darlene any drugs? He demanded harshly. Drugs? Jenna looked confused. I gave Travis a warning look. Medicine. Did Darlene take any medicine that you knew about? He bit his lip, but he was silent. I don't think so, Jenna said. Travis cut in again, but his voice was softer. Did she smoke anything that you knew about? Jenna scrunched up her eyes. She said sometimes Nikki gave her stuff to smoke. Weed, she said. It made her choke, though, so she didn't like it. Did you know Nikki, I asked? She shook her head. No. Hadn't the woman at the foster home addressed the person who answered the door as Nikki? Do you know where Darlene saw Nikki, I asked. Eloisa arrived with our food. She placed it on the table and smiled indulgently at Jenna. Did you say thank you to the nice lady? Jenna turned obediently to me. Thank you. You're most welcome, I answered. Travis seized his burger and took a huge bite. Jenna grabbed her shake and stuck a straw into it. I tried again. Jenna, do you know where Darlene saw Nikki? She put the shake down on the table, but she didn't answer. Was it at school? I prompted. Jenna laughed. Oh no, Nikki doesn't go to school anymore. Darlene said he was a grown-up. 
He lived in the house where she stayed. That confirmed my worst fear. Did Darlene tell you what they did together, besides smoke weed? He was her boyfriend, Jenna said. He gave her an engagement ring, a big diamond, she showed me. Next to me, Travis sat up, his shoulders rigid. So she and Nikki were planning to get married, I asked. Jenna looked confused. I don't know. She said once they were engaged, they could do boyfriend things. Travis's head jerked up. I'll kill him, he muttered. I put my hand on his arm. His muscles were taut. What do you mean by boyfriend things? I asked Jenna. She giggled. They kissed and stuff, and he gave her presents. Travis made a strangled sound deep in his throat. What kind of presents? I tried to keep my voice calm. Jewels, things like that, lots of them. Jenna cast an uncomfortable glance at Travis. His fists were clenched and he was ignoring the rest of his burger. The door opened and a few people walked in. Jenna stood up. Look, I gotta get to work. Don't you want to finish your burger and shake, I asked. She grabbed the plate and the cup. I'll finish in the kitchen, thank you. I tried to get one more question in. How long have you and Darlene been best friends? Jenna looked at me in amazement. We aren't best friends. No, I was puzzled. We're BFFs. You can have a BFF and a boyfriend too, I asked my mom. Jenna disappeared behind the swinging doors. Travis looked after her. His face was pale and he swallowed hard. He stood up. Excuse me, I have to use the men's room. He was gone what seemed like a long time. I ate my burger and stared at his unfinished one. Was he all right? Maybe I should check. Eloise came by with the check. Anything else I can get you? No thanks. I glanced down the short hallway with the restrooms. I'm not sure about the young man. She looked at me sharply. He left. He what? I asked. Eloise put the check on the table. He came through the kitchen a little while ago, stopped and said something to Jenna, then he went out the back door. I put a 50 down on the top of the check, a huge tip, but I didn't care. I said thank you and dashed out the front door to my car. Chapter 8, A Call for Help Was Travis headed to the house to confront Nikki? The idea terrified me. But he told me he didn't have Darlene's address, so how could he find it? He picked up her wallet in the hospital room. I hadn't said anything since it made sense that he would be the one to have it. Something in there could have her address on it. As fast as I reasonably could, I drove to Poplar Street and pulled into a parking space down the block. Travis stood in the driveway, next to trash cans, his arms rigid by his side. The front door swung open. Another young man strode toward him. Nikki? They squared off, fists clenched and staring at each other. A woman came around the building and she was carrying the shotgun. I doubted anyone would listen to reason, Travis included. If I tried to intervene, I'd just put us all in a more precarious position. I picked up my phone. I hated the idea of getting Travis in trouble with the police. After all, he was the one who didn't belong here. But even more, I hated the idea of Travis getting shot. I punched in 911. From where I sat in the car, I couldn't hear what they said to one another. Nikki was facing me and I could just make out the expression on his face. It wasn't pleasant. 
Nookie stood a head taller than Travis, but he was out of shape. His belly hung over his belt. He threw the first punch. Travis tried to duck it, but the blow landed on his shoulder, sending him staggering backwards. He straightened up and stepped forward again. A nasty smirk crossed Nikki's face. He set his feet and drew back his hand again. This time he aimed the impressive weight behind his fist directly at Travis's head. Much more agile, Travis dodged. Nikki's fist shot through the empty air where Travis had been. The considerable momentum carried him forward and he landed sprawling. For a moment, I thought Travis was going to kick him as he flailed on the ground. But Travis backed up toward the garage, letting him regain his feet. With the roar that I could hear from the car, Nikki lowered his head and rushed at Travis, who stood still until the last second and once again dodged. And Nikki was once again carried forward by his momentum, this time crashing through the pile of trash cans and into the garage wall. I knew the area was heavily patrolled, but I was surprised by how quickly a siren sounded. A patrol car pulled up, followed closely by another one. They skidded to a halt at the end of the driveway. Four uniformed police officers rushed over. They were shouting something, but I couldn't make out the words. One grabbed Travis by the elbows, turning him around and saying something to him. Another grabbed Nikki. The remaining two seized the women and the shotgun. Travis, his hands clasped behind his head, reluctantly allowed himself to be maneuvered to the front of the nearest patrol car. He placed his hands on the hood, leaning over it stiffly as the cop ran his hands over his clothes and between his legs. Then he put Travis in the rear seat of one of the cars and closed the door. The third patrol car screeched to a halt. Nikki was struggling, trying to pull away from the cop holding him and yelling. One of the new arrivals pulled a pair of handcuffs off his belt. <coughs> Nikki was cuffed, frisked, and wrestled into the back of the other car at the end of the driveway. He never stopped shouting. The woman, minus her shotgun and hollering obscenities that even I could make out from where I sat, was also cuffed, frisked, and wrestled into the back of the third car. One of the cops went up to the still open front door of the house. He paused for a minute and then spoke into the radio on his shoulder. He signaled to his partner and they entered the house, holsters unsnapped and hands on the butt of their guns. I watched as one of them emerged from the house, his hand pressed to his mouth and nose. He spoke into his radio again and then joined another cop next to the patrol car where Travis waited. They talked, but I was too far away to make out any words. New sirens sounded, my stomach tied in knots. One of the cops opened the car door and leaned over Travis. A few seconds later, Travis got out of the car. He held on to the door and nodded as the cop talked to him. Then he turned and walked away. I stepped out of my car and called to him. He stopped and looked at me uncertainly. Two ambulances pulled in front of the house. The cop gestured for Travis to move out of the way. Opening the car door, I shouted, get in Travis. And as we drove away, a third ambulance arrived. All right, Jack, finally, 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 we get to the guessing part. So Darlene's death wasn't an accident, but who killed her? I don't know, but this has been depressing, man. <laughs> There's been nothing happy-go-lucky. Well, it's, these are never happy-go-lucky, but still, 
I mean, the one we read was literally where Allegra was just on vacation, you know? Yours was not depressing with Dead Deadman. I mean, that was like the greatest dead guy (laughs) name ever. (laughs) That was just me being lazy. (laughs) So here's our suspects. So Herman Boldale. Now, that was Darlene's foster father and the man who we know drove the pickup truck that hit Darlene. Um, We know he did it. But did he do it, do it? Did someone influence yes. the film? Then there's Travis, Darlene's older brother, so he's 19. Uh, he didn't do it. Okay. There's Jenna, the waitress, who is Darlene's BFF. I don't think she did it either. Nikki Boldale, the natural son of the foster parents. We just got to see him tumble around with uh, Travis there. Uh, I, I'm Okay, keep going. There's Mrs. Boldale, who doesn't get her first name in this story, but she's Darlene's foster mother. That's the shotgun mama. Uh-huh. And the only other person we've met so far is Eloise, the waitress who works with Jenna at the Burger Barn. It's her. No, um, I, it's not her, but it was either Nikki or the mother. And I'm putting my money on the mother based solely on the fact that all those ambulances went into that house. So it could have been both of them, but there's a there's a secret crime that went on that I don't think was Nikki might be charged for, but I don't think it's, you know, his master plan, you know? It's definitely the mother's master plan. Whatever that it is. If there's ambulances, I'm assuming the other foster children are not doing well. Which just makes this more depressing. This story is just not not a happy one, man. Shall we find out? The last out? one was really just half a love story. I mean, <laughs> you know, we got to see two characters developed and, you know, blossom. This is just like, yeah, everyone's broke, can't afford food. They're in foster families. Everyone's dying. No, not fun. Anyway, yeah, let's Shall we going. go on? Yeah, sure. Let me pick a chord progression. Okay. It's chapter nine. Answers at last. The next afternoon, we sat at the table in Burger Barn, a newspaper spread in front of us. It was mid-afternoon and the place was empty. Travis sniffed as he picked at his burger. I can't believe I left Darlene living in that hell hole. You did what you could, I said, and you gave her hope. That was important. I picked up the newspaper. The headlights screamed, House of Horrors, disabled adults found chained in the basement. He clenched his fist. And here I thought she was taking care of foster kids. She was really down in that dungeon looking after all these people who couldn't take care of themselves. Pointed at the paper. It says here that the Bulldales were collecting the disability checks for all of those people. Yes, Travis said. He picked up a fry, but he didn't need it. And they not only got a big check for being Darlene's foster parents, but they made her do all the work. I found the whole situation unbelievable, but it had happened. I don't understand why no one knew what was going on, I said. Didn't they investigate the home before they placed Darlene in it or check up on her? Travis shrugged. Social workers are always in a hurry. They knock on the front door, somebody shows them a kid who doesn't look beat up or starved, and they figured it's okay. I shivered. I I was supposed to go into that house to work with Darlene. Yeah, he rubbed his eye with the sleeve. I bet they were worried about you and the case manager coming, maybe insisting on going inside, so they decided Darlene had to go. 
He suppressed a sob. No, I didn't want to hear that. Yeah, Travis looked down at the tabletop. They gave her some crack or something to make her dizzy, and then Nikki shoved her out under the driveway in front of the pickup, and Bulldale ran into her on purpose. How do you know that? I asked. His shoulders hunched. Remember, they put me in the cage of that patrol car, and they left the window down. They didn't pay me no mind. I took a deep breath. You heard what they said? Yeah. He gripped the fry in his hand so tightly it broke in half. And I heard what Nicky was hollering, saying none of it was his fault. He told them about the people in the basement and how they decided they needed to get rid of Darlene. Said he had nothing to do with it. But she didn't die right away, I pointed out. I mean, she might have recovered and they would have investigated more. You read their police report, he said. The only reason she survived even that long was because a neighbor saw and called 911. They were going to make sure she was dead before the ambulance was there. Travis opened his hand and the pieces of squash fry fell to the table. I didn't know what to say. I was sick to my stomach. I couldn't even imagine how Travis must feel. Front door opened and Jenna came in, lugging her backpack. She saw us and hesitated. Hey, Jenna, Travis said. Hey, yourself, she said. Travis reached into his pocket. I got something for you. She approached the table. Travis held up a cheap ring with a huge clear stone. I think Darlene would have wanted you to have this. Jenna stared at it. That's Darlene's engagement ring. She looked at us, her lips traveling, her lips trembling. Is Darlene really dead? Travis didn't answer, so I said, yes, I'm afraid so. This means I won't be able to see her again. Jenna slipped the diamond ring onto her finger. She won't need this anymore? Travis found his voice. I'm sure she'd like for you to have it. Jenna held it up to catch the light. Darlene loved this. She always said, diamonds are a girl's best friend. So it turns out the character from your book was her best friend. <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story I heard here. Yeah. Anyway, no, that was depressing. Jeez, man. Yeah, so if we work the logic backwards, so this family is, is doing something horribly illegal and immoral, and on the premise that a social work volunteer could go into the house rather than, I guess, clean things up or anything else, they decide to drug her and push her in front of a car, killing her. Do you buy that? I, I do buy I do buy that that's what happened. I don't buy that out of all the disabled children you are currently harboring, that no other social worker has showed up. It's like, wait, I'm I'm confused. How has how can they get away with this? They have to hide it every time a social worker comes. I have to admit that I'm not really familiar with our with our social work or foster system. So I, I don't know if uh, K.M. Rockwood's dis uh, description here is is accurate or is extreme or, you know, could be ripped from the headlines for all I know. I, I know there have been stories about people keeping, you know, children. I thought it was mostly children in cages and stuff. But if you work the logic as nobody is checking up on these people and now someone does have to, so they killed her, that makes sense. It's overkill, in my opinion. It is. 
not <laughs> no irony intended, no pun intended. Um, but I feel like this is a situation you're going to run into more than once. So you should have do they kill someone every time? How do you not have any way to prepare for this? I agree. I see your logic. Yeah. And wouldn't it be... I mean, not easier, but less expensive to just kill the social worker when they show up. Maybe that brings more mystery to the place that's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, your cousin uh, Charlotte is a social worker. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should, I don't know if if exactly what type of work she does, but maybe we should uh, call her and find out. (laughs) Consult. Yeah. So I did have a chance just to do some quick Googling because, again, I do not have experience with the social work system, especially with uh, people with disabilities. Um, Really fast Googling found not any happier information. (laughs) It says that um, people with developmental disabilities are in constant danger of being exploited. They are four to ten times more likely to be abused than their peers. And this is from a website called disabilityjustice.org. Um, according to one study, children with disabilities are three times more likely to be apu- uh, abused than their peers, while children with intellectual and mental health disabilities are nearly five times at risk of being sexually abused. Hmm. People are messed up, man. These are should be the people who are protected the most. So, well, I want to thank KM Rockwell for a story that definitely made us think. I'm sorry, I just I just messed her name up. Uh, KM Rockwood, sorry KM, uh, for a story that made us <laughs> think. So let me tell you a little bit about KM. KM Rockwood draws on the varied background for stories, among them working as a laborer in a steel fabrication plant operating glass melters, related equipment in a fiberglass manufacturing facility, and supervising an inmate crew in a large medium security state prison. These jobs, as well as her work as a special education teacher in an alternative high school and a GED teacher in a county detention facilities, provide most of the backgrounds for novels and short stories. So I think KM seems to know a bit more about the situation than you and I do, sir. Probably. KM is the brain power behind the Jesse Damon crime novels. Who is Jesse? Like I said at the top of the show, he's an ex-con, released after 20 years. There are six books in the series, all with Goodreads, ra- Goodreads ratings around four or higher. It's funny how the math works with the ratings, though. So the sixth Jesse Damon book, Abductions and Lies, has seven ratings. Six are five star, and one is one star. And the person who gave it a one star, that person averages rating books at two and a half stars, which means the reader is either a crazy hard reviewer, or they use the one star for something else, like a reminder that they really want to read the book. Either way, if you kind of throw out that one outlier, she's got straight five stars for this um, abduction and lies. One of the five-star reviewers said, The story is very well-paced, and the writing is very well done. The characters are well-developed and quirky. Each main character has a lot of personality. I thoroughly enjoyed this novel and look forward to reading more about Jesse Damon. Another reviewer said, 
compassionate, intelligent characters with an exclamation point, each trying to survive yet willing to help the next person, mixed with judgmental and confused characters, and a good old-fashioned mystery. Jesse deserves a standing ovation, but feels lucky to be able to walk the streets. Well, I have not read K.M. Rockwood, aside from her story here, but I am putting Jesse Damon on my to-be-read list because I do love a good mystery. So that wraps this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Thank you to our software for making it through with only two glitches. We really have to figure out what's going on with that. Yeah, it's kind of annoying. Kinda. Thank you to our dogs who actually stayed quiet this time. Well, kinda. Mostly. I don't think the microphone picked it up. Hopefully not. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Interested in advertising on Mysteries to Die For? Check out our website. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Best Friend was written by K.M. Rockwell. I keep messing up her name. I apologize. I have a typo and I only... Rockwood? F- Rockwood. Petrified. My goodness, I'm so sorry, K.M. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. should mess up my own name for as many times I messed up. T.F. Wolf. <laughs> I've had people pronounce their last name as Woof. Woof. Like, they refuse to, like, acknowledge the fact that it's named after an animal. T.G. Woof. Yeah. I'm sorry, K.M., but I did like your story. All right, Jack, you have the floor. Take us out. <laughs>